Welcome to the Market Lens podcast presented by Released. We'll be putting a strategic lens on trends in the commercial real estate market backed by one of the most extensive live data sets in the industry. Stay tuned as we discuss the stories behind the numbers. Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the Released Market Lens podcast and I would like to introduce Andrew Knight. So Andrew is the Global Lead of Data and Tech at RICS. Welcome aboard Andrew, thanks for being here. Pleasure, pleasure. Just, uh, I know you're over in uh, in, in the UK, so uh, hopefully not too hot over there at the moment. It's seen it's a bit of a heat wave going around everywhere in Europe, except perhaps except the UK, which is probably pretty standard um, <laughs> for London. Uh, but I'd lo- love to hear just before we get started uh, a bit about a bit of background on your role and what you do at RICS. Yeah, surely. Um, I've been at RICS for over twelve years now. I've done a number of roles. Um, worked in our standards team, looking at uh, data standardization. Um, business valuation and other valuation issues. Uh, for a long time, I, I led our engagement with uh, the financial sector based on the City of London, which is very much around the kind of valuation process, since that's the, the interface for so many of the capital market participants with our membership. Uh, and latterly, over the last sort of two to three years, um, working now in our knowledge and practice area, looking at the impact of data and technology right across the property lifecycle. I mean, we have 110,000 members worldwide, they work right across that property life cycle, across land, residential, commercial, alternative assets and infrastructure. So uh, a lot of impacts in terms of data and technology and the availability of uh, hopefully better and larger data pools and, and obviously all the algorithms that can can use that data to help the profession. So as I say, a pretty kind of broad uh, and wide view of the sector. So we're really keen to discuss the kind of figures you've got this morning around leases. Imagine you've seen some some change in your time there uh, in terms of data and how serious people take it or how important it is to, to your members. But very much so. And I think on a positive note, I, I'm seeing the whole sector move away from, dare I say, being dominated by effectively digital bits of paper, PDFs and, and Excel sheets, and, and actually moving towards a much more structured approach to, to curating and analysing data. And indeed, hopefully, I think over the medium to long term, an understanding that actually pooling and sharing data is a much more powerful way of addressing some of the challenges we see in the sector rather than lots of data silos and and perhaps a a reluctance, which is perhaps understandable from commercial perspectives, to actually share data that give participants a full view of the market rather than those small little snapshots. Yeah, there's still a lot of, uh, there's still plenty of fear and um, and guarding of data. I totally understand. It's been it's been a, an industry for a very long time, which has been about yeah. who you know and what you know, and 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 that's really your point your point of difference. So to to share that widely, I can see how that would be uh, daunting and scary and a big change. Are you based in your beautiful RICS offices in sort of around Westminster? Way? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, that that's our our main London office on the corner of Parliament Square. Uh, like so many firms mm-hmm. now, and I think this this talks to perhaps some of the, the figures we'll be discussing. Uh, a lot of us are. A much more hybrid now in terms of where we work so uh, both my colleagues have always been based in other parts of the world and other parts of the country but uh, a lot of the time we're working from home or working from other settings so uh, you know that kind of hybrid mixed office home office other locations is is the new reality certainly for us and many other firms in central business districts yeah i was going to ask actually before we get into the data which we'll do shortly just that anecdotally from you how you feel because that, that's a really uh, unique and special part of London there, right right by Parliament. How do you feel that area has changed for the better or the worse, or perhaps hasn't changed too much at all, being it's quite... Well, it, yeah, I mean, it, 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 in some respects, 
the area is a little atypical compared to to what I would call a kind of you know for those of you who know London kind of West End or, or Midtown or, or the city because there aren't actually that many offices aside from the fact that that area particularly is dominated by government Whitehall and also because of the uh, <clears throat> the, the physical buildings in that area it's a really kind of busy tourist spot so in many respects it feels as busy as it did before um, the pandemic. But it's a slightly mm. atypical area if you think of, you know, classic West End office or city office, where obviously, depending on the, uh, the 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 approach that employers have taken, obviously, the footfall is down. And ironically, this was something that we saw before the pandemic. Uh, I know talking to some people in our, our major mass transit organisation, Transport for London, even before the pandemic, we were seeing a real kind of peak of commuting Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and less yeah. numbers Monday to Friday. So we, we've seen in many ways, and I know this is a cliche, that the pandemic has accelerated pre-existing trends rather than necessarily created new trends from nothing. I, I would agree with that. I mean, we've got offices ourselves at release. We've got offices in New Zealand, Australia, the US and the UK. Um, and so I spent a, a few years working over in our London office and the work culture was different there. There was It was mm. common to work from home at least one day a week. And like, it's a cultural thing, but I think it's generally... I think the driving factor, I could be wrong, but I assume the driving factor was um, people would generally commute further, right? So there's a lot of people that would come into London on a train, which would take over an hour each way, perhaps an hour and a half door to door. And so, you know, to take that out for one day a week was a really big boost for their lifestyle. And I think that's that's quite different where shorter commute times are in smaller cities are, are more common. Exactly. I, I think that that's a big point. And I think that's why, you know, it, it, it can be hard to generalise because you say, depending on the commute times, depending on how many people tend to live in a city I can think of Paris in comparison where much more there's much more of a kind of a, a live in Paris type um, uh, situation there when you have those reduced commuting times it's obviously much easier and much more comfortable to pop into your office if it's not 45 minute hours journey away and obviously that's compounded with the cost of living crisis that if you're spending as you can in the southeast of England five six thousand pounds a year for a, a, a ticket mm-hmm. to get into London from the surrounding counties that's you know clearly a considerable sum of money so that combination of the cost of commuting and the sheer time it takes because london is very much a kind of commuter city i think that that's clearly driven that sort of uh, reluctance by many people to go in or certainly to only go in a, a few days a week yeah absolutely it's really interesting that rolls perfectly into um some of the data that we released uh, recently um that's come from the release platform and uh, and we're here to talk about today so i mean the main the, the sort of the headline uh, grabbing piece there is that we're seeing a massive increase in flexibility and lease links, uh, and that's showing up in a, in a lease links dropping. So between 2019 and now, uh, so kind of pre-COVID, post-COVID, um, we're seeing lease links drop by 34%. Some other highlights there um, being that we're seeing a 70% drop in leases that are over 10 years, um, and we're seeing now shorter leases, so leases that we define as um, 12 months or less, has had a big increase. Actually, that's gone up. Um, it was originally 15% back then. It's now 48%. So nearly half of all new leases signed um, uh, are short-term leases. Big change in a pretty short space of time. Uh, really interested in seeing uh, like, uh, your thoughts on that and, and if you're, how you're seeing that change and how you're seeing the industry react to that. Well, once again, it, you know, it is uh, in danger of becoming a cliche, but you know, these trends were, were happening before the pandemic. I remember to, uh, at a... Yeah. Uh, I think it was an EPRA conference, and this would have been way before the pandemic. And, and one of the CEOs of the large uh, UK-based REITs saying, you know, the days of the 25-year full repairing lease w- were over, that they'd already seen this sense that people were 
we're not comfortable and not really happy anymore to to make those long-term commitments based on the, the the sheer floor plate that they thought they might need and i think as ever with these kind of situations there are probably multiple drivers going in on here there, there may be elements of uh, in a positive way lots of startups lots of firms who therefore aren't making a long-term commitment there's clearly now firms who are thinking well actually we really don't know how this kind of hybrid home working thing is going to shake out we don't want to make a commitment now in terms of lease length to actually uh, commit ourselves to a floor plate size when we really don't know what we're going to need in the next x year mm -hmm. so there's that level of uncertainty um i i think other factors are, are just the sheer supply and demand there's clearly been a flight to quality now in terms of people looking for uh, the right locations they always do but also higher quality in terms of ESG ratings and performance so we may well be seeing a degree of more flexibility in asset owners and landlords because they have properties which perhaps are less attractive compared to that flight to quality so supply and demand startups uncertainty on how much actual floor plate people are going to need once they see what the return to, to, to work looks like and just a general trend that overall to actually almost push back from a kind of a, a, a an occupier perspective for these long long-term commitments and clearly this has a number of implications for us i mean if you think of the valuation profession as an example the shorter the leases, uh, you know, the, the, the more uncertainty you get into terms of that income flow when you're looking at those income producing assets. So quite a lot of issues there in, in terms of how you look at the, the value of real estate when you have effectively a rent roll, which is much shorter lease length. And also, I think it makes it quite hard to perhaps from a valuer's perspective, once again, to unpick um, real effective rents here. When when leases are shorter, the impact of rent-free periods, fit-out premiums mm -hmm. uh, are much larger on the, the value of that lease. So a lot of interesting implications here. But my sense is there's there's multiple factors driving this. And once again, if one looks at a particular market, it's really made up of sub-markets. So there'll be other issues that drive it in different cities, different central business districts. But my main point would be this was a theme. People were already looking for more flexible uh, leases and I think also asset managers had realized that because of this they were always going to be now involved in a much more active asset management program because you couldn't simply mm -hmm. lease a building for 10-15 years and effectively walk away to use the, the yeah. vernacular walk to you the know, walk it, to the pub and see engineers exactly you, you've now got to be thinking okay how do I have a plan to keep that asset in, in tip-top condition and attractive to a new occupier when that new occupier may be uh, only three or four years away. So I think there's been a real acceptance. And I think also driven by the need to, to, to make sure that these assets are also ESG compliant, a real realization that there will be a percentage of that rental income that comes in each year that you need to actually plow straight back in, in terms of that active asset management. And the sense also, and if you think particularly perhaps of, of retail leases, where clearly the success of the occupier is a big driver of their happiness to stay on, to, to, to not only... Um, not leave at the end of, of, of the lease, but not exercise any lease breaks, be able to pay a, a higher rent at rent review. So there is a, a level of self-interest here from asset managers to make sure they really do actively manage their assets to keep their tenants really profitable, content, and, and therefore get them back in at the end of the lease or not exercise any lease breaks, for example. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree. A lot to unpick there. I think the fact, like the interesting thing is you, you mentioned the, the flight to quality ESG demands and funnily enough there's been these new entrants really into the market driven by like sort of WeWork as a starting point but there's mm. a ton of others that have sort of followed that and often actually the ones that were offering the higher quality space the WeWork style space were the ones that were also offering 
the bleaks of all these terms. So mm. you see, and, and I, you know, you see people you're seeing traditional landlords responding very quickly and very well. I, I mean, I, I never bought into the myth that people were saying, "Oh, WeWork's got this big moat around it, and traditional landlords will never be able to respond to it. They'll just never be able to get it." And I was like, "I think they, I think they will. I think there's some <laughs> smart people who are going to figure it out." And I don't think it's that hard. Um, but I've seen like um, companies like GPE, Great Port in the States over there, who have done mm. an awesome job and, uh, reading through their, their annual reports and just seeing the success they're having with their various different options, um, which has been brilliant and a really good example of how a very traditional landlord um, and a well-entrenched landlord who has known all about long-term leases for the majority of that, their life uh, as actually, during their asset ownerships have completely switched and are taking advantage of it. So it's, it's, I think it's, it's very, very interesting. Um, you touched on the valuation space as well. Um, and and also the lease incentive side, I think that we we can talk about whether or not this is a an opportunity or a threat. I think if it, mm. I think it's a threat if you want to run the old business model for sure. I think it's an opportunity for most who see this as an op- as something to improve the offering in the market. I actually think tenants and landlords win here, um, and better result for, for everyone all around. Um, but how do you look at it? Do you see do you see it as an opportunity here, rates? I think it is an opportunity, and I think it's an opportunity for the sector generally to 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 really provide high quality real estate. And I think once again, it's become a bit of a cliche in terms of perhaps the demands, not just from the the tenant, the occupier, but actually their employees. If we if we think of office, where people are expecting and demanding, I think much higher quality workspaces now. And if we come back to the hybrid working, the the issue of, of, of wanting, I think quite understandably to get people back into the office for a certain period of time. I think people's expectations are much higher here in terms of the quality of the workplace, the, the, the way the floor plates are laid out. And I think that there will be some, uh, if I hesitate to word, use the word losers, but there will certainly be some commercial properties that I think will be stranded that, that really won't be fit for purpose anymore. And some of those may be viable for conversion to resi, for example, but there will be some assets that for better or for worse, and I think every you know we we have cycles of this that that really won't be perhaps viable anymore, both in terms of their yeah. SG capabilities, their location, and the quality. And investment will be required. But I think, as you say, uh, there's always a danger in assuming that the the well-established asset managers aren't capable of running good real estate. They very much are, and uh, and if anything, they they've got the depth and scale of experience to understand what the market now wants and invest in and produce assets that actually will produce very high rental values because what i don't think we're seeing here is a kind of a a downward pressure on rents per se i think what we're seeing is this as you mentioned this flight to quality so people are prepared to pay a good market rent for a high quality asset so i think there is an opportunity here to produce the right kind of real estate using technology using a, a cleverly designed floor plate using mixed use, for example, to maybe maximize the overall asset. But there is an opportunity to get a return on investment, but it's about quality now. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think you raised a really interesting point there on the stranded assets, because I think they're, I think that's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out, particularly as the new sort of ESG standards are, mm. are rolled out and they get stricter and stricter as the years go on. Um, I think that you know, conversion to resi or conversion of use uh, will save some of them. And then I think there'd be a subset of some which are going to be very tricky to solve. The one that I'm yeah. most interested in is what happens when you've got a building that's not fit for use that no one wants to be in, but it's also a historic building. So pulling it down is not really an option either. You know, like you, especially you think about London, there's a, there's a, some beautiful buildings that probably just aren't really fit for purpose, um, not at least in their current form. So 
it's, it's, it's unclear to me. I don't know if you've got any ideas or you've been through any, any discussions what happens. Yeah, experience. I mean, it, it, I, I suppose it depends on, on whether, I mean, they're obviously, depending on the jurisdiction you're talking about, there are obviously various restrictions in terms of listing and, and other kind of planning constraints. But I, I guess what's interesting is that, uh, in fact, I was chatting to a colleague of mine yesterday about, about this very topic, about this kind of uh, facade type project where you, you retain the external facade of the building, but mm. you do within the envelope, you do a significant refit to make it, fit for purpose depending on what that best use is is, is now deemed to be and uh, as we discussed sometimes you know commercial offices aren't necessarily uh, the right kind of floor plate for commercial to, to resi but ironically these more heritage buildings will typically have been perhaps built originally for residential or built for some kind mm. of other purpose rather than these vast open plan offices so i think as ever with property it's so heterogeneous that it is case by case but i think there are opportunities to retain the historical facade features of buildings, but actually within the envelope to have a radical refit so that externally it still has that character, but internally you can really upgrade these buildings to have the kind of technology and, and, and floor plate that, that people now want and will pay for. Yeah, I think I I think we'll see some incredible innovation in that space and and, uh, and some, some incredible creativity. It brings in mind a customer of ours actually in, in Sydney called Stasia, who uh, they, uh, they, they own an old church um, mm. And they completely ripped it out, completely renovated, it, and it's a beautiful office for architects now. It's incredible. Uh, if you you can look it up online, if you look at starsia.com.au, it's an incredible conversion there, and there'll be so many more like that. You see a lot where really they just take it back to the shell, yeah, and you get a great result. And um, it actually yeah. looks really good. That that mix, you get a, a really nice blend between historic and modern, and, and something that's useful. It's a great, it's a great idea. But just I guess the uh, the cost needs to come down enough on the asset price for the numbers to add up, basically. But I'm sure it will if there's no other way. Well, yeah, and I say once again back to that kind of valuation piece. I, I had lunch with some, some valuers a, a few weeks ago now, and was discussing this whole kind of challenge of what's the impact of ESG on the value of your, your existing asset. And it was interesting that, that they actually said, "Well, we've turned the question around. It's no longer well, what's my asset worth given the state it is currently in. Is actually what will I need to spend to get it to a point where I can rent it out at a good market rent? So it's more about understanding that kind of capex." that needs to be invested to get that asset to, to, to the point where it's seen as high quality, it's seen as attractive, and you will get a, a good market rent. And obviously, for certain assets, that will be perhaps prohibitive, depending on your you know, cost of capital and, and your business plan. Yeah. But it's interesting how it's become less of a kind of debate on, oh, well, how, what's the haircut I need to sort of put on this asset? It's more a case, well, no, this asset should perform. What's it going to cost me in terms of capex? That's very interesting. Actually, I know we've spoken to a few so funds, newly established funds who are specifically gearing up to raise money now because they see these buildings that are going to become available and will be owned by people who just don't have the skills or the capital yeah. to do that conversion. And they'll pick up those opportunities and, and turn into something great. So it's going to create, like you said, in that opportunity phase, it's going to create a effectively a whole new industry. While we're um while we're on the topic of valuers and we touched on it briefly earlier, how are they thinking about valuing a property? When you don't have the guaranteed tenure of a lease, it's been one of the core drivers of property value, right? So if that's taken away and you're on rolling terms, are they looking at anything else to try and guarantee the longevity of the income that's coming in, the rent that's coming in off that building? Are they looking at things like renewal rates or um, client sat tenant satisfaction, anything unique that they're talking about there? Well, as ever, they'll be looking at comparable evidence because what what they'll be looking to do is find, uh, for example, uh, as you as you provide, that they'll be looking at average uh, lease length, and they'll they'll be looking at covenant strength of, of the tenants that are there, 
and they'll be having to make judgments based on how they see the market performing, how they see it, you know, how long does it take to fill an empty building? Because in an extreme case, uh, a valuer may well be, be asked to, to value a building on a vacant possession basis, say, well, okay, imagine assumption here is this building is empty, given the market, given what you're seeing in the market for that particular kind of building, for that particular location, how long will it take to fill with, with, with good strength tenants? What would those lease lengths be? And indeed, what kind of market rent would you see? So to some extent, this is nothing new for valuers. They've always been challenged mm-hmm. by understanding covenant strength, length of lease, uh, likelihood of people re- renewing. And, and as ever, they're looking for evidence from the market. They're looking at an asset to value it, but they're always looking for similar assets in that location to look at the behavior and to use those comparable points of evidence to then make their judgment and produce their opinion. So in some respects, it doesn't change anything, but as ever, it's a slightly shifting uh, game in the sense that they're having to look at different data points all the time to understand what's driving behaviour and ultimately to look at transactions in the market and see what people are paying for certain assets and indeed what level of commitment they're making. Yeah, very interesting. And then potentially an argument that with shorter lease terms, lower commitments from a tenant, that that might reduce the top, which certainly makes signing a deal a lot simpler. So there may be shorter vacancy times because tenants are able to sign up quickly. Um, we may see, you know, I think probably less incentives now because you're not signing up to a, a long-term lease. So you may be able to fill that space uh, very quickly. Um, and also, I think like retention rates, like even if you've got a 12-month rolling lease, tenants don't generally want to move around too often, right? If you've got happy staff and the and the, the landlord is doing a good job, the asset manager is doing a good job, you know, it's, it's going to be very disruptive for your business if you're looking to dance around every year or two. No one actually wants that. So there's a sort of this drive to stay there anyway and be there if the space is doing its job. And so actually that's it, like looks like a, real, a potential real positive when you look at it through that lens of lowering the barriers to entry and, and, and filling the buildings quicker. Exactly. And, and you know, whilst it's not a, a, a totally kind of 100% analogy, I mean, our profession value hotels where literally people stay a few nights, but they can still value that basis on the quality of the the hotel, uh, where there might be a brand element as well, but they can they can still value those on on a going concern basis because they know the kind of quality and the kind of revenue that is reasonable to expect looking at comparable hotels, for example. So I think we're just into a model where we're looking more almost as a sort of an operational asset and, and having to, to, yes, look into more detail of the way the market's performing even than before, but it's still, mm-hmm. you know, capable of looking at it and saying, well, actually, what are people paying for similar assets which have a similar kind of profile, similar quality, similar kind, similar kind of profile of, of tenants, and make those similar assumptions about the behaviour and the forward-looking income streams? Yeah, awesome. That's, that's super interesting. Uh, I guess to sort of wrap on our final points here, I think that what you said right at the start of this was super accurate, and that like COVID was really an accelerator of all these trends that were happening before, and we kind of see it as commercial real estate now faces. A new competitor that never they've never faced before. A traditional competitor for commercial real estate was the office building down the road, or the retail store around the corner, or the other shopping district. Now it's uh, digital, right? It's the internet is effectively the main competitor because you can work online. Of course, you can sell online. You can do almost anything online. So you've got something that's completely new, um, and that's not stopping at all, right? So we see our job as giving commercial real estate the tools power the tools to remain relevant in a digital first world. You see that as, as a core purpose of, of what we do at release. But digital is getting uh, better and, and more influential in our lives as well. How do you see, if, you, if you're willing to take a, a bold step, how do you see this playing out um, over, let's say, the next five years? Well, I, I suppose what one could use uh, another analogy and, and look at e-commerce and, and physical retail. And I don't know about you, but we still have shops. 
So I think once again, there's this, this being kind of this this polarization of if you have a high quality asset in the retail space, it will work and it will work for the tenants and it will work for the, for the landlords and the asset owners. And similarly with office space, if you've got high quality office space in the right place, that's attractive for the occupiers, their employees, perhaps has a mixed use element as well, then it will work. So I, you know, I don't think the office is dead quite the reverse, but it will have to evolve in the same way that physical retail has had to evolve and work alongside e-commerce. So I think perhaps the analogy is reasonably strong that yes, it's been hugely transformative, but it hasn't killed off that traditional retail. And I don't think it will kill off the traditional office, but it will change it. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree. It's got me thinking. In fact, today, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I bought a a shirt for work online, and it turned up. I was quite excited, and it, it but like a circus tent, it was huge, um, and so I was <laughs> going to go through the, the rigmarole of sending it back and getting the right size. And I thought, you know, what, what am I doing? The shop is like ten minutes away. You know, I went yeah. to the shop, tried it on, and, and bought two other things while I was there. Right? It's a, it's an experience. It's not going to go away, and it was far better. I wish I'd just done that in the first place. Would have saved myself some <laughs> some pain. Uh, so it was great. Hey, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. I think that's been very insightful. I'm sure everyone will enjoy listening to that. Um, and yeah, and uh, we look forward to talking again in the near future. Indeed, and you, Tom.